We are in Ephesians chapter 2. This is our 13th study in the book of Ephesians. And the title for today's message is probably more complicated than the message itself. It's called Three Passive Actions, and then with a subtitle of What in the World is God Doing Here? And uh, I find myself asking that question a lot in my life. And as I observe church and I observe the world, I wonder, what is God in the midst of doing? Like, am I a part of it, or am I working against him? What in the world is he doing? Or when confusing things come into my life, you know, I wonder, how, how does this fit with what God is doing? And uh, so let's go ahead and read in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 19. It says, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Let's pray again. Jesus, I ask that you would bring clarification and illumination and through your inspired word, that you would speak to us, because God, this is a, a, a room filled with people who have faith in you, people who trust you and believe that you are going to speak through your word today. Lord, we didn't come in here Uh, because of religion. We didn't come in here because it was our duty. Uh, Jesus, we come only in in faith. We're believing that it's it's your will and it's what you have for us. And Lord, that you're working. So God, we ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. And we know and we have the assurance that you say what we ask in Jesus' name, that you will give us. And so Lord, we believe that even. And we know that you have something special for us today. Jesus, clear our mind from all the distractions. And Lord, we thank you uh, for dying on the cross for our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1978, Thomas Henson of Boulder, right up up the road, uh, he sued his parents for $350,000 on the grounds of malpractice of parenting. Mom and dad had botched up his upbringing so Badly, he charged in his suit that he would need years of costly psychiatric treatment. That's interesting. You know, he wants, you could say, he wants a new family. He's not happy with the one he got, and he would be just fine if he got a brand new family. If you lived in, like, Ukraine today, or Syria, or one of the other nations that has some terrible civil war going on, you probably would say, I'd like a new country. But that's the real problem. Because how do you become a natural citizen of a country? You have to be born into it. Or how do you become part of a family? You're born into it. Some countries have stricter standards for uh, naturalization than others, and some families have no interest in adoption. And so it can be difficult just to pick a family that you want to be adopted by if you're unhappy with your own. 
I mean, could you imagine? Maybe it'd be actually more interesting if we let the orphans line up all the people in our city and all, all the different families, and they got to pick who they lived with. I just imagine that all the rich people would kind of be running for the cracks and like, oh, we don't want to be part of this. And the selfish people maybe don't want to get involved in that, and so they're kind of hiding behind the other people. That would be an interesting way to deal with orphans. But we can't just pick what family we're a part of or what country we're born into. And even if we want to change, we aren't really considered natural citizens or family members. But with God's kingdom and God's family, it works totally different. It is true that there's no list of rules that you can keep that will grant you entry into his kingdom or his family. And it doesn't depend on how good or how deserving you are. And no amount of riches can buy you a place at his table. And you can't sneak in either. And even those cute eyes that sometimes get you your way, ladies, mothers, they are, they're pretty useless in this situation. The only way to enter into this new kingdom or be born into this new family is actually to be born into it. But our problem is we weren't born into it. Then we need to be born again. That's where that term comes from. And if you would turn with me to the book of John, chapter 3, we're going to just see this, this dialogue, this story about Jesus and him explaining the situation to Nicodemus. It says in John chapter 3, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night, and that's why we call him Nick at Night. And, ha, ha, you can write that one down. That one's good. And he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher that's come from God. That's an amazing statement right there. It says this, this, he was a Pharisee. He was one of the rulers of the Jews. And then he said they all knew that he had come from God. Well, why were they fighting him so much? Well, that's for another story. But we'll, we'll talk about hard hearts later. He said, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him and said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you can hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes, and so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Nicodemus answered him and said, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him and said, Are you a teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you Do not receive our witness. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? 
No one has ascended to heaven but him who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who was in heaven. So Jesus is saying there, heaven is my country. Heaven is my family. That's where I'm from. In verse 14, and Moses, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, and so I'm going to pause real quick. Moses, back in the day, all the people committed a sin, and so God sent them snakes to bite them. It's pretty comical, I think. But God said, Moses, people, I'll heal the people. I've heard your prayer. I'll heal the people. So you just take this stick and put a snake on it, like a, make a bronze stick with a bronze snake on it, and if the people look at it, they'll be healed. And it's a wonderful picture of Jesus getting crucified on the tree, becoming our sin nailed to a tree. It's a great picture, and he's talking about it right here. He says, just as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's going to be me, he says. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that, through the, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name or in the only begotten Son of God. So Jesus tells our friend Nicodemus, Nick at night, that to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. To enter the family of God, you need to be born again into it. And it's a spiritual thing. It's, as Nicodemus asked that, it seems like ridiculous question, can a man enter his mother's womb again? And that's just disgusting. But the reality is that it's a spiritual process. It's a spiritual thing. And in case we were wondering, well, how does that spiritual process happen? Jesus goes right into explaining it. He says, you just have to believe, look in faith at me on the cross. Jesus already knew he was going to go on the cross. And he said, if you look at that with faith, if you believe what I was doing for you on the cross, you will have this born again experience. Now, is that something that you just magically feel inside yourself? You're just born again? Or some people say they have this really fancy feeling and it's really intense and that's great for them. And other people have nothing as far as feeling goes. And that's where we have to understand that spirituality isn't necessarily connected with feelings. Some of us feel very strongly when we experience some spiritual thing. And others of us don't. But it doesn't mean you're not spiritual. And I find that some people are always looking for something. I should feel something different. I should feel. But Jesus says, you know how the wind just blows and you don't control it? Have any of you ever controlled the wind? The answer is no. And so are you able to control how the Spirit works in you or how the Spirit affects your emotions? And the answer is no. You don't get control over that. But the spirituality part of it is real nonetheless. It's just as real. And the other reason why it's a spiritual thing is that it's not a, a piece of paper that you're given when you're saved saying, here is your certificate of being born again. Because you might lose a piece of paper. 
No, this is a spiritual thing, which means it's internal and it's invisible, yet just as real. Just as real as if someone gave you a plaque saying you were born again, or if you actually did be born of a woman. That's real. Everyone in here was born, right? Well, the being born again process is just as real. And it gives you access. It gives me access to a family and a country or a kingdom by faith. And there's no other way to enter this kingdom, Jesus says. Now, Paul says here, he says, Now, therefore, you are no longer, back in Ephesians chapter 2, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens and saints with the, and members of the household of God. Paul reminds us that when we did not believe before we were looking at Jesus and what he did on the cross, we were strangers and foreigners. But the moment we turn away from our sin and we turn toward Jesus and look at him in faith and relate to him on faith, we become full-fledged members of the family and born-again citizens of the kingdom, the country of God. That's a new family and a new country and a new life just given to us. And so, this is where I'm going to explain to you a Greek term or called a passive action, or it's a kind of a um, linguistic term. A passive action is something you need to understand, because in the Bible there's passive verbs and then there's active verbs. And an active verb is one where you're doing the work, something you're told to do. But a passive verb is something that's describing something being done to you. It has nothing to do with you. I mean, it's affecting you, it's changing you, but it's being done to you. And we're, um, that's very important because in this little section that we're studying, we're looking at three different passive actions, three things that God is doing. So another way to look at a passive, passive action is someone else is the source or the initiator. You are the one who's receiving and the action happens to you. So, passive action number one that we're looking at is we are made citizens and family members. So, what in the world is God doing in this world, in our lives? He is making citizens and family members. He's not trying to grow the church. He's not trying to grow church attendance, I should say. He's not trying to change the world and bring peace to everything in the world right now. Although that's kind of a byproduct. He's not trying to save the baby whales. Although that could be a good thing. He's not trying to save the environment. Although that could have benefits as well. No, what God is working on right now is adding citizens to the kingdom of heaven and family members to the family of God. And Jesus is doing this by his spirit when people believe. So does that mean Jesus is going around trying to make people more Christian? Make people act differently? Is he going around trying to get people to be more committed to church or to tithe more? And the answer is no. 
That is not his motive. That is not his goal. That is not his action that he's working on. He is just trying to get people into his family. Now, when you're part of that family, a whole bunch of things change in your heart where some of those things come naturally. And that's the way true growth and fruit happens in our lives. But it's not the, that's not what we're trying to spread. That's not the gospel, the good news that we're trying to go after. You know, Jesus is doing this work by the Spirit. So then he says, he's, he's doing this, making citizens and family members, and he says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So Paul describes this kingdom and this family as something that God is building. And boy, am I glad he's in charge of this building project, because we, as a church, would totally botch it up. There was this congregation that was about to build a new church uh, building, and so they had a building committee, as many churches do. And in consecutive meetings, these were the following resolutions that they passed as they were planning on building their church. They said, number one, we shall build a new church. Number two, the new building is to be located on the site of the old one. Number three, the material in the old building is to be used in the new one. And number four, we shall continue to use the old building until the new one is completed. See, as the church, we kind of get in these ruts and in these, we get stuck in these mud pits and quicksand of, what, do, what is God doing here? What, do, what am I supposed to be doing to help build the church or to grow the church? And Jesus says, That's not your job at all. That's my job. Your job is to love me, hang out with me, read my Bible. That's it. Look at in in Matthew 16, verse 18. I'll read it to you. He says, I say that you're Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So Jesus is the one in charge of building the church. He's, that's his project. He's the foreman, and he doesn't have a silly list that he's going off of. It's all spiritual. It's all like the wind. We don't know how it works. There's some churches, they get huge. People come in, people standing in the aisles because there's no room for them, and God did that there. And then you have churches over here that are five people huddled in the corner, hiding from their government. And God is doing just as good a job of building that church as he is this church. From his perspective, he's in charge of it, and he's doing just fine. Everything he does is perfect. And so we have to get our eyes to line up with how he sees things. The church is his creation. The church is his building, and he's pretty excited about it. And there's a very specific way that he's going about building his church. The most important part, and he kind of gives us a little, Paul gives us a little thing here. He says, the most important part is Jesus. He's the chief cornerstone. That's literally the stone that you capped the building with. So a lot of the buildings would have these walls that would go up like this, and then they would have the roof that would go like this, and then they would put one stone right there where this angle of the roof came together, and that stone is the one that bore all the weights of of the walls and the roof and everything would be on this stone. 
So it, it literally capped the building. It, 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 the Greek term for the, he's the cornerstone means he is literally the tip of the angle. It held all the weight and gave direction to the rest of the foundation and the, and the construction. So this is where churches can go wrong. When, when coming up or lining up some project or some work for the kingdom, they consider the way the world builds a building, a project, a plan, and not solely what Jesus says. The world says when you're going to build a club or a group of people, you should accept only the best into your group. But Jesus says to offer fellowship to anyone who believes and follows him, regardless of status. The world says, do a demographic studies and find the best place to put your church. And Jesus says, listen to him and minister to the people he tells you to. The world says you need to look sharp and, and don't speak to offend people. And Jesus says, come as you are and speak the truth in love. The world says success is measured by numbers And Jesus said, success is measured by fruit, fruitiness. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. And I look around our church, and I see that those abound. And it makes me so happy. Because I think, I picture Jesus walking through some churches and he's picking off some fruit, and he takes a bite, and it tastes like plastic, because it was a plastic fruit from someone's fake life. And I hope and I believe that as he walks through the aisles of our lives and, and the orchard that he has created here, that he picks off some fruit and he tastes it, and he's like, that is glorious, that is delicious, that is the fruit of the Spirit, so loving so patient and kind, and that's you guys. And what the Lord is growing here is amazing. You know, if your heart as a church is not focused on Jesus as your chief cornerstone, you can be struggling and laboring for years and years on the wrong projects. You can look at your creation, this project that you've been working so hard on. Maybe it's some VBS or some children's ministry or some worship team or some... some work that you're doing in the community and and as you look at it, it becomes this huge monstrosity that you've built in your own strength and you become fond of your own monstrosity and you're kind of like Igor or Dr. Frank, whatever that guy is, and he's like, he's alive and it shouldn't be alive. It's, It's not supposed to be alive. And, and, you, and you have to spend all your energy to keep this thing alive that you're doing for God. And even though Jesus might not be bringing any life into that thing, you know, you pour your efforts and you, you spend your whole life or your whole church ministry trying to keep this thing alive, and all because the cornerstone was wrong. And that's why we need those pruning scissors of Jesus to cut off the man-made additions to this glorious thing that God is building called the church. We're okay when God tells us, stop doing that. We're okay if Jesus says, nah, you don't have to worry about that anymore. That's okay. It doesn't mean you failed. It means you're listening to the Lord. And he'll tell you the right thing to do at the right time. And I'm committed to that for us here. I don't want us to just start some program because that's 
what we think we should do. Because if you start it in man's efforts, you have to continue it in man's efforts. And ministry is never by man's efforts. It's always by the Spirit of the Lord. So then Paul says that the foundation on the cornerstone is the apostles and prophets. So the foundation, uh, this means, uh, when he says the foundation is the apostles and prophets, it means it's the word of God, written by the apostles and the prophets. It's that day-to-day guide for the growth of the church. So if Jesus is that cornerstone and the foundation is the word of God. Why do we spend time all, every week, why do we spend all this time studying? You know, if you look at our, our vision thing and our, our, uh, our flyer and it's on all our things, it says worship, study, and surrender. You know, we, we know what worship is. We're supposed to worship the Lord. But the study part, a lot of churches just don't study the word of God anymore. But we're committed to it. Because that is how God builds his church. God right now has his hard hat on in your heart. And he's like, watch out over here. I'm doing some work over here and someone else. You know, it's like God is at work right now when we're in his word, when we're studying. And as are we, so the question is, are we growing as a church? And I think that's a good question. And here's my answer. We've been studying. We've been applying God's word. So, yes, we are growing And is God concerned about how I think that growth should look? No. He's not concerned whether you see it or not. He is working. I mean, I I may think that the the growth in my life or in your life or in someone's life should look a certain way and they should be beyond where they're at or they should be more mature than they're at. But God's not concerned about that opinion because he's working at his own pace And in his own way, and he's doing just fine. I'm not in charge of the fruit that is produced by his spirit, by our time in the word. He is. And that's where I can sit back and relax and trust that he's faithful to use his word. So I'm going to give you right now five reasons why we study the word of God. Why we're committed to it. Why we love it and treasure our time in the word. And you're never going to come to church here and not have a Bible study. It's always going to be what we do. First, because the Word of God is infallible. That means there's no error in the Word of God. Uh, In in Proverbs, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect concerning the soul, and the testimony of the Lord is... The testimony of the Lord is not only infallible, uh, but it's just kind of the second part to this one. It's inerrant, meaning there's no mistakes. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. There are no mistakes. All those who try to tell you otherwise are not right. So, the word of God is infallible. So we're going to look at it. Number two, the word of God is complete. Many cults add their own books and commentaries to the Bible, but all you need is God's word. It is complete. In Revelation 22, we're warned, God says, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book, that if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away from his part in the book of life, from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. So God thinks 
your opinion of His Word is pretty important. To the extent that He says, if you're not committed to the totality of His Word, you're on very slippery grounds when it comes to your salvation. Wow, that's intense. So the Word of God is complete. I've been doing a lot of study about, the, about church history recently in my own life, and it's amazing how the church was able to identify what the Word of God was. And it's not like a bunch of guys sat in a room and said, well, this is going to be a, in the Bible, and this is not going to be in the Bible, and this is going to be in the Bible, and this is not going to be. Well, that's not how it worked. The Word of God was just there, and all the pastors were like, yeah, that's in the Word of God because... Um, it's an apostle wrote it. So someone had to have a connection with an apostle. And, and they, it had to be infallible. And it had to be of spiritual use. And all these different attributes that they identified as, as what was to be included in the word of God. And so it wasn't this big mystery. In fact, it was very clear what, what books were supposed to be in the Bible and what weren't supposed to be in the Bible. So if you ever want to study that, I think it's a really good thing. It's how we got the canon of the Bible. But the, the end of the story, after you do all the studying, is you will learn, and you can just take my word for it if you want, but I encourage you to study, that the Word of God is complete. This is everything that God wanted you to know. He says, I have given you all things that you need for life and godliness. Everything right there in this word. Third, third reason why we study the Bible all the time. Because God's word is totally authoritative. In Psalms 119.89 it says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. It means the word of God is the only source for divine authority. This divine authority is for you and me as servants of Jesus. So when he says something, it doesn't change and he means it. It's just, it doesn't change. It's authoritative, and it can tell you what to do. Fourth, God's word is totally sufficient. Not only is it complete as an entity, it's totally sufficient. We don't need anything else. Second Timothy chapter 3 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. So Christians, us believers, can be totally secure in studying the Lord and studying the Bible because it's God's plan for our life. What about all the psychology all the things I learned in college that they said I need to have a successful life. Put them all in their place below the Word of God. And if they contradict the Word of God, they need to go. And fifth, because God promises to use the Bible. He promises to. In Isaiah 55.11, is one of the greatest promises. It says... So my word shall be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it, it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. God's saying, when, when my word goes out, when you hear my word come into your ears, it will do something. I don't get to decide what it is. I might say, well, I wish you would do something with that, or I wish it would do something. I don't get to decide. But God says it will do what he sends it for. And it will not return to him void. 
That means every moment that you've ever spent in the Word of God has value for your soul. It matters. Every moment. And you can't say that for pretty much anything else. You might have worked out for ten years. If you go five months eating junk food, it's wasted, right? And you're like, oh, I've lost it. But God's word is not like that. It's never futile. And I have to keep that as my center. I have to keep that as my purpose as a pastor is to give you the word of God because my opinions aren't, there's no promise that my opinions matter. There's no promise that what I say will bear fruit in your soul. But the word of God, it does. We read a huge chunk of John chapter 3 just this morning. I think that was very valuable for us to just hear the word of God. So, okay, I get it. He will just let his word build us and change us. But how does that really happen? Well, I'm, I'm really glad that you asked. Look at verse 4 in Ephesians chapter, or I'm sorry. I'm going to read to you a verse in First Peter real quick first. First Peter chapter 2 verse 4. It says, coming to him as to a living stone like the cornerstone that we're talking about, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So it says in Peter, Peter tells us that we're being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices accepted to God. Um, by what? How is this building happening? Well, the very first three words of those, of those verses in Peter is coming to him. So how am I built up? How do we change? How do I become a better Christian? Or how do I see this fruit happen in my life? And the answer is you just come to him. You just come to him. You don't need to follow a list of rules. You don't need to be better in your own discipline. You need to just come to him. God is saying, you know, we just come to God and we say, I need you. I trust you. And so I come to you through your word in humility and faith. And the word of God does work inside us. It's amazing. So now we're going to look at the passive action number two. Is that we are fitted together. So what in the world is God doing in our lives? In our church, he is fitting us together. Verse 21, back in Ephesians 2. In whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom means that those who are in Jesus, who who believe and who follow him, they make up this building or this body called the church, and they are God's saints, and they're all perfectly united as children in one family Yet, even as children start out as immature, they need to grow and they need to grow in maturity. So the church is being fitted together and grows into a holy temple of the Lord. Later in Ephesians, we'll we'll see in in chapter 4, it says, the whole body uh, is joined and knit together and every joint supplies something different according to the effective working by which every part does its share and causes growth to the body for the edifying of itself 
in love. So God is piecing together his church exactly how he wants to. He's the great architect. He knows what he's doing. And even though these might not be the pieces that I would have chosen to place around me, they are exactly who God wants placed around me. Have you ever met someone that bounces from church to church? Someone that just cannot seem to to work out in any church. They always have a reason for why they're not happy here or what someone did over there. And see, from God's point of view, he placed them where they're at. He picked that very spot for them like a puzzle piece that they fit together. He had a plan, he had a purpose, he had a place and a ministry for them to be a part of. But they pulled their Jenga piece before the peace of God was revealed in their lives. See, I know church can can rub you wrong. And church and the people in church can, can, can just cause great difficulty emotionally and sometimes physically. I mean, it can be weird. Church can be weird, right? But don't pull your Jenga pay. What's that game? Jenga? Jenga? How's this? How do you say it? Jenga, right? All right, Jenga. Whatever. Don't pull your peace out before God gives you peace where you're at. You know, just moving churches, I'm not saying moving churches is a bad thing. Because God may move you to one place or another. But we, when we make those moves, we need to make sure we have the peace of God. That we know that it's God leading us that direction. And it's not us getting a little uncomfortable, getting bored, or, or just got rubbed the wrong way by someone's personality. We saw some sin in someone's life, and, or in some way we felt disrespected, and boom, we're gone. We just can't let our pride or our anger drive our decisions. We need to let the Spirit and His peace drive our decisions. But it, when you commit to the body, when you commit to being where God wants you to be, look at what happens. It says, in that, book, in that verse in Ephesians 4, that every piece does its share. It causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And that's the type of family that I want to be involved with, want to be part of, is just where everyone's doing their share, and the whole purpose of everyone is to love each other. And so we are fitted together, and it says in Ephesians 2, that we grow into the temple of the Lord, a holy temple. Do we have to figure out how to do this? Do we have to figure out? No. It's passive. It means it's happening to us as we walk with the Lord, trusting with Him with all our might. The Lord, you know, the temple is where a relationship with God happens in the Old Testament. But God desires to have the relationship with every person in the world, so He did away with the big stone building in Jerusalem. And he says, now instead, it's located in every heart and in every person in the church. There's no more limitations. It can grow as large as he wants it to, or it can be in the smallest place that he wants it to. And the Jews back in Paul's day, and the legalistic people today, they think that there needs to be limitations and rules put in place to guard us against living sinful lives. But God says that he grows holiness 
He grows holiness in the lives of the people who are in the church like a, like a garden grows fruit. He is growing the holiness. We don't have to say, you need to stop doing that before you come to church. Or you need to be this before you come to church. No, God takes care of it. Talking with a really good friend, you know, he's like, I, I never, you know, I wanted to change something in my life, but it never happened. And as he's drawn near to the Lord, it's just happened in his life. There's just fruit now in his life. And it's this week it happened, and it was really amazing for me to just see this verse come alive here in our church. You know, people might, you might invite someone to church, and they're like, well, I got some stuff I need to work out before I come to church. And I want you to say, no! (laughs) Don't try to work out anything. Just come. Just come. Just come and believe. And you'll see, God will work out all that stuff. And people may accuse me of not caring about holiness, and that's totally not true. I care about holiness. But the way to get that holiness, the holiness that God is building, building His holy temple, as we're reading here, is a passive action. It is not an active verb. It's passive. It's what God is doing in us as we trust Him. So, passive action number three is that we are built together for a dwelling place of God. What in the world is God doing? He's trying to hang out with us. He wants to walk with us. And he wants to live with us. In verse 22, it says, in whom you are, all, you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. We walk with Jesus. We dwell with Jesus. His desire is to dwell with you, just like Adam in the Garden of Eden. You know, every day, him and God would walk together in the cool of the garden. And it wasn't until his sin that, that God came looking for me and said, Adam, where are you? I want this, I want our thing back. Where's my buddy that I used to walk with? And Adam's like, it was the woman. (laughs) And if you want to, you know, we're going to study that a little bit more. I wanted to kind of announce to you guys that on Wednesday nights, we just finished the book of Zechariah last week on Wednesday. And this week we'll be starting the book of Genesis. So we'll actually, we'll be getting into this story in depth on Wednesday nights. And I hope you can join us. But he said, man, I want to walk with you. I want to dwell with you. I want to be with you. And then a few hundred years later, Adam's seventh grandson, uh, Enoch, arrived on the scene. And it says that he did walk with God. And, and it says that he walked with God so much that God just took him. Took him to heaven. I, I imagine that story. The story is just kind of weird. And it's just in there in a verse in the Bible. And it says he was walking with God and then God took him. And you're like, what? Wait, no explanation? What are you talking about? But I just, I, I heard someone say this one time, and it really ministered to me. And he's, he said, you know, it was probably like Adam and Enoch were on a walk, and, and they would do this. It says he walked with God 300 years. So could you imagine every day just walking with the Lord, just right there? And it, when you do that, you get closer and closer and closer until one day God, you know, told Enoch, he said, you know what, buddy? We're closer to my house than we are to your house. Let's just, let's just go to my house instead. Oh, that was just awesome. I love that. 
It's so good, you know. It's like, oh, I want to be close to him like that. But that's the life that we're given in the church. We're give, we, are, we are the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. We can't live in heaven yet. We will someday, but we can't be there yet because we have these sinful bodies. But he, through this miracle called the Holy Spirit, is able to come and live inside us and walk with us, dwelling in our hearts. And I just, I, I find that amazing. So maybe you say, well... I don't want God to live with me. I just want to visit him every now and then because he's kind of like that creepy uncle that I only like to see on holidays. Well, God says that does not work. He's not okay with that. He says, you be my fa- I'm going to be your father or nothing. Husband or nothing. I'm your God or Nothing. Would a wife like it if her husband said, I don't really like you enough to actually live with you all the time, but let's just visit. No. She'd be like, get lost, loser. That doesn't work. In fact, if you're not being built into a dwelling place of God, then you're not a part of his family or his kingdom. But you can be at any moment that you want to turn to Jesus, you're granted citizenship and adoption by faith the moment that you turn. Then you will be part of the true church of God, the, his called out ones, the ones who are filled with the spirit that he's walking with. So this guy, this uh, theologian Adam Clark, explained how God's work in the church um, just is amazing. And I'm going to read you some of the things that, that he talks about, the glorious church that we're a part of, that God is building. He says, There is nothing as noble as the church, seeing that it is the temple of God. There is nothing so worthy of reverence as the church, seeing that, it, that God dwells in it. There is nothing so ancient, since the patriarchs and prophets worked to build it. There is nothing so solid since Jesus Christ is the foundation of it. There is nothing so high since it reaches as high as to the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There is nothing so perfect and well-proportioned since the Holy Spirit is the architect. There is nothing more beautiful because it is adorned with building stones of every age, every place, every people, from the highest kings to the lowest peasants, with the most brilliant scientists to the most simplest believers. There is nothing more spacious, since it is spread over the whole earth and takes in all who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And there is nothing so divine, since it is a living building animated and inhabited by the Holy Spirit. Well, that's great, you say. That's a great view of the church, really moves me. But what about all those stinking problems in the church? What about all the mistakes? Yes, there are mistakes that people make. There have been blunders and selfish leaders, many other failings and pastors that have blown it big time. But God is perfect, even though the work is in progress. Just like your life. And I encourage you, 
to think about the church like your own life? Could someone look at you and say, what about all the mistakes you made? I don't want to be associated with you. You make me not want to be a Christian. And I think each one of us would actually desire that there be grace and patience with our mistakes, right? And, and, and patience shown with our failings. And I think we should be filled with the same attitude towards the church. Because God is not discouraged by our failings or the failings of the church. He's already paid any debt that either could incur. So, in the church and in our lives, we've seen today that God is working. God is acting. God is the one growing us and working in us through these three passive actions. He is working upon us. And we're going to continue that now as we are going to come take communion. So, I'm going to have the band come up. We're going to play a couple songs and... Once we start our first song, I invite you just to stand up and, and come down here and serve yourself communion if you're a believer. And if you want God to work in your life and want God to work in your soul and in your heart, and you believe, then come and take it. And if you don't believe, then please don't take it. And you need to make that decision for yourself. So we're going to come on up here and, and, get, and play a couple songs and... And allow the Holy Spirit to just take the word that we've heard and use it in our lives.